2: Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds in envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time.
1: This is Unexplainable. I'm Noam Hassenfeld, here with our senior science reporter, Brian Resnick. And Brian, as always, we're here to talk about an unanswered scientific question.
2: Yeah, I actually have this really huge, kind of uncomfortable unanswered question. Okay. And it's, how much of psychology is wrong?
1: Do we have have reason to assume that tons of psychology is wrong?
2: Uh yeah. So <laughs> okay. 10 years ago, researchers started to notice and to really get, you know, worried about some really rotten things going on at the core of a lot of psychological research. It led them to really question and rewrite a lot of assumptions and since then there's just been this like kind of huge fight. It's really a crisis. Scary. Okay, where <laughs> where do where do we start here? Let's start with the psychologist who's been working on this problem for years now.
3: I'm Samin Vazir, and I study how we can do psychology better.
2: Samin said, like, this crisis really started getting going in 2011 when this one paper came out that had some really weird claims in it.
3: Yeah, so it was a paper claiming that people have ESP, like, predicting the future.
1: Wait, wait, like, ESP, like, sci-fi, knowing what's in people's heads?
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: okay.
2: Yeah, this, this paper was from a psychologist named Daryl Bem, an interesting guy. <laughs> and in it, he wrote up a lot of experiments. This is an experiment that tests for ESP. It takes about 20 minutes and is run completely by computer. This is the language participants read when they, you know, sat in front of a screen.
0: On each trial of the experiment, pictures of two curtains will appear on the screen side by side.
2: The computer would put a picture behind one of the curtains, and behind the other one would just be a blank wall. Your task is to click on the curtain that you feel has the picture behind it. If participants guess correctly, BEM took that as evidence that they predicted the future, that ESP is real. Yeah, but but it's not real, right? Yeah, yeah, not according to like laws of physics. Okay, according to those things, sure. Yeah, no.
3: <laughs> and For most of us, we thought that the claims were preposterous.
1: Okay, preposterous. I mean, is that just a nice way of saying this is all nonsense?
2: Oh, it was nonsense. Okay. (laughs) The results here were absurd.
3: But this is
2: the thing. The methods BEM used... Those weren't absurd.
3: It was a nine study paper, very methodologically rigorous by the standards of the day.
2: If this paper had more plausible results, like if you sub in ESP for like something more normal, Mm -hmm. it would have been viewed as a great paper.
1: Okay, but if you're using all the right methods that psychologists everywhere agree are fine and legit, how do you get a result (laughs) that's as absurd as people can predict the future?
2: No, this is the key question. So, shortly after this whole ESP paper comes out, another paper comes out.
3: So, it's a 2011 paper by Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson called False Positive Psychology.
2: And it really answers your question. It shows really clearly how absurd conclusions can come from seemingly, like, well-built studies. The basic idea here is experiments generate a lot of data, and a lot of it just seems like noise. But you could do a thing where if you only publish the patterns that are interesting to you, like within that noise, like you can get these results.
3: Let's say you tell me that you accurately predicted the winner of the Australian Open.
2: You know, two days before the Open, before any of the players get on any of the courts, you wrote down your prediction on a piece of paper. And you told me that Naomi Osaka, she's definitely going to win this. And then lo and behold, Osaka! champion in Australia for the second time.
3: If I know that's the only prediction you made, I'm going to be much more impressed than if you had 50 other pieces of paper dated the same date, predicting 50 different winners of the Australian Open.
1: Yeah, like one scenario is a real prediction and the other one is just, you have a bunch of guesses and
2: obviously one of them is going to be right.
3: So it's relevant to the reader to know what else you tried, to know how many times you had to try in order to get this beautiful result.
2: So this paper is saying that some psychologists like, are doing the equivalent of writing down 50 predictions on 50 pieces of paper and just not publishing when they predicted wrongly. Okay. Um, but then critically, this paper then goes on for a while, like just listing a bunch of ways, like a bunch of like acceptable methodological ways that researchers can like implement and get flawed results. Hmm. But to be clear here, it's not usually as blatant as this Australian open example.
3: What it looks like in in the real scientist lab is not nearly that malicious or intentional or extreme. And you have a rationale for it.
2: I think Samin is right. A lot of this was done in good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these methods that are, can be used are money-saving, you mm-hmm. know? Some of the methods are used to, like, just find something to publish. And it, it, publishing is, like, the currency of an academic career. Like, there's a lot of pressure to do it. Yeah, Samin, for example remembers going through her dissertation results with a mentor.
3: And we picked out specific results and we're like, these results together would make a good story.
2: So she, she built that story and put it in a paper and then published it in like a really prestigious journal right before she got tenure.
3: And then when this stuff hit, I was like, this is exactly what I was doing. Pulling out a pattern from noisy data, highlighting just that pattern and ignoring everything that didn't fit and then telling a story around it.
2: And... It's not just Samin coming to this like really quite unsettling revelation. A lot of people are starting to say, "Wait, something's not right here. We need a checkup on our work." Okay, and how do you how do you do that? How do you check like years of past research? It's called replication.
3: All replication is is saying, oh, you think you made a discovery? Let's make sure that it's a real discovery. And to do that, let's repeat it as closely as possible to what the original researcher did. Let's make sure that we can consistently get that result. Maybe not 100% of the time, but at least most of the time.
2: If something replicates, it doesn't like tell you anything about how something works. It just tells you something works, like there's a there there. It's really foundational. These are the bricks that science is built on
3: you know, the 2011 events made us think maybe it's all a house of cards. So the next step was to take each brick in our house, each of the findings that we think we're building on, and make sure they're real findings.
2: Psychologists basically crack open Psych 101 textbooks, and they also think about, like, a lot of, like, the most popular findings in their field. And they just start asking, are these experiments replicable? Things like the 10,000-hour rule,
4: It looks like we need to spend 10,000 hours practicing before we get good. Power posing.
2: Stances researchers said would make people feel more powerful. The marshmallow test.
1: An elegant, simple way to test a person's ability to delay gratification.
2: Psychologists start testing these famous studies, in in a lot of cases with a lot bigger sample sizes and much more rigorous methodology. And a lot of them just don't really hold up, or their results just seem much less impressive. Some studies have started to cast doubt on this whole ego depletion thing. One of three scientists who conducted the research said, quote, I do not have any faith in the embodied effects of power poses.
1: So you found that of these hundred studies, in most of them, they did not confirm the original finding. Right. That sounds like a crisis.
2: Yes. (laughs) This this whole episode has been called uh, the replication crisis. So
1: all of this is coming out. The studies are failing to replicate. How does the whole institution of psychology respond?
2: Not well. Okay. <laughs> um, members of some of the old guard in psychology start to get really heated. Mm-hmm. They're they're feeling attacked. Like this is their work that's coming under scrutiny, the work of their colleagues. I found one symposium, like a series of talks um, from 2016 that has some of this tense flavor in it.
3: Our symposium will touch on no less weighty topics than the foundations, methods, and implications of science.
2: At this symposium, uh, this famous psychologist gets up.
1: Dan Gilbert.
2: His name is Dan Gilbert, and he says, "The symposium here, it's all been friendly, but (laughs) this friendliness is an illusion.
1: It can almost make you forget that there's a war going on. Almost can make you forget that psychology is in crisis.
2: This war, he says, it's leading to some of his colleagues like getting really stressed out and retiring early.
1: Middle-aged people are screaming at each other at conferences and hiring attorneys.
2: And are- he, he directs some of the blame to just young people and their attitudes. Today, it seems to me, young psychologists are remarkably
4: unkind, self-righteous, intolerant, jealous, petty, and snarky.
2: This summarizes a lot of the pushback I've heard to this replication crisis that it's really about tone that people are just being really rude about it in public but it can't just be
1: about tone right it seems kind of weird to say psychology is falling apart but you all could be nicer about it
2: i guess i'd say some people think it's overblown but actually in the years since this symposium more and more researchers are agreeing this is a real problem samine says as they do this big roundup, as they check the bricks of their foundation that their science is built on, they find that maybe 50% of psychology papers replicate.
3: That's not a house. You can't build a house. You can't extend on a foundation where less than half of it is real.
2: This isn't an authoritative number, like, very genuinely. We just don't know how many studies meet this basic test. You know, There's just been a ton published. <laughs> That'd it, be a lot of, to check up on. Um, but this 50% number is like realistic enough to be scary. So does that mean that 50% of psychology is wrong? Ugh, this is a really tough question. For one, yes, there's good reason to assume that a lot of psychology might be wrong. Mm-hmm. This is the unexplainable, like, we we really don't know how much, (laughs) how much of psychology is wrong. And if we don't want to have all these, like, questions remaining about, like, the validity of psychological science, so much work needs to be done just to, like, just rebuild this foundation.
1: How do you do that? How do you rebuild an entire institution?
2: I'll introduce you to someone who's trying uh, after this break.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Wow, that guy means business.
2: Just an amazing player.
1: No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB.
2: MVB? Be the most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: We're back, Brian. In the first half of the show, you were talking about how maybe fifty percent of psychological research has been called into question over the last decade. It's all part of something called the replication crisis. So
4: where does psychology go from here?
2: Yeah, there, there are a few directions. And one really interesting one is from this guy, Chris Chartier.
4: I'm an associate professor of psychology at Ashland University, and I'm a social psychologist by training.
2: Chris's story also starts in 2011. He read the BEM paper, and he read the Methods paper, and, like, Samin, it made him wonder about his own work. And I even asked him, like, when you looked, did you think any of it was bogus?
4: Yes. Um, Bogus, dude. Maybe that's the Um. wrong word, but, like,
2: (laughs) did you, like, did you... Flawed. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Or
4: was reported incompletely (laughs) or selectively against in spite of my best intentions. I would say yes.
2: Chris did see these problems in his own work, even though it hurt a little to look. And he also saw these problems in the fields of psychology. And he started attending these conferences where a lot of people were talking about replication. And then in 2017, he really he had this epiphany. Do you remember the great American solar eclipse?
1: The first total solar eclipse of the century, all across America, an unforgettable moment. Sure, I remember well, had my paper paper
5: glasses. Eclipse glasses are very good, except for driving.
2: So a few days after the eclipse, Chris wasn't wearing his eclipse glasses, but he was driving, <laughs> he, was, he was driving to go mountain biking, and he was thinking about the eclipse and just feeling Jealous,
4: Yeah, physics envy. That's the, like, Freudian phrase that you could toss in there, I, I suppose.
2: He started to think about, like, what led to this moment. Mm-hmm. How much physicists and astronomers had to know about the solar system and how right they had to be and how precise they had to be to predict an eclipse. Like, they allowed us to have this grand moment together. And then he just thought about his own field, psychology. They do not have this precision.
4: Then I I took this three-hour mountain bike ride out in the woods, spotty cell service. It's a great place, time, setting for me to think. And the contours of this um, idea that emerged as the Psychological Science Accelerator started to take shape.
2: Sorry, the what? (laughs) Yeah, the Psychological Science Accelerator. This is Chris's idea to make psychology precise, eclipse-level precise.
4: On the drive home from that mountain bike ride, I recorded an audio memo to myself. Oh, it would be a real trip to listen back to my audio memo.
1: Please tell me you got this voice memo, Brian. Oh, I have it.
4: Um, Blog post, building a CERN for psychology. Make the pitch that...
2: Chris wants to imitate CERN, which runs this huge particle collider in Europe. And Chris is starting to get a little technical here.
4: A distributed laboratory network.
2: But the gist is that he wants to fix psychology's crisis by bringing together lots and lots of researchers from all around the world and form this, like, one big testing squad. <laughs> so he, he gets home from his bike trip and he, he just starts on this.
4: So I'm still in my bike shorts because um, I was, like, too frantic to shower
2: he writes this blog post, like this kind of mini manifesto of like this dream he has. And he puts up a sign-up sheet. And, you know, as, as a young researcher does, he puts it on Twitter.
4: <laughs> really, it was a classic um, academic viral experience. I always put the academic qualifier on there. Like, I think the tweet was retweeted like 30 times. And I was like, oh, my God, Kim, I'm famous. Um, we made it. And so, like the yada, yada, yada
2: here is that now there are more than a thousand researchers in this big network, and they come from more than 70 countries all around the world.
4: It switched from like, "This is a cool idea. Maybe 10 people will do it with me very quickly to like, "We really are going to do this thing."
1: Okay. That seems like a like a great idea. You know, lots of people all over the place working together. How does this actually solve the problems at the core of psychology, though?
2: Yes, there are a few things here. One is that they're going to do huge experiments, bring together lots of people, have huge sample sizes, okay. internationally, you know, test things around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the kind of main like the key ingredient here is called pre-registration
1: pre-registration.
2: Yeah. Remember that this whole big problem starts with researchers just tweaking things as they go along. Mm -hmm. So pre-registration cancels that. Um, It's basically before a researcher does anything, they write something down. It's like a recipe for a study. For our souffle, we will use three tablespoons of butter. They list all their ingredients. Three egg yolks. They list all their steps. We must butter our souffle dish. They list like how they'll analyze the results. We're looking for a crispy brown top. And for four inches of rise. And, you know, they, they submit this. They put this out in public so other people can, like, look in, you know, keep them accountable. It prevents researchers from tweaking things along the way. <laughs> they can't do a, oops, I forgot to publish these 49 failed predictions. You know, that just can't happen. This is my plan,
0: and I'm sticking to it.
1: Couldn't you just still tweet the recipe and just kind of
4: keep it quiet?
2: I asked Chris the same question.
4: Yes, you you could still do that, but it it clearly makes that fraudulent.
2: <laughs> okay, fair, fair.
1: So I guess you have all these labs all over the world making these promises, you know, to stick to these recipes that they lay out ahead of time for important studies. That's That's pre-registration. That makes sense in theory. I get it. What does it look like when you actually try to make it happen?
2: Well, you know what happens when dreams meet the real world. Oh, dear God, my kitchen is such a mess. Chris asked people to email him, and he asked, what psychological studies should we look at? You know, should we check up on? So he
1: wanted people to submit their own research and ask people to prove them wrong?
4: No, it was
2: not that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people were submitting other researchers' studies and
4: saying, let's check this.
2: Okay, that,
4: that's awkward. It is awkward.
2: <laughs> yeah, so they get these potential papers, these, these potential experiments to check. And the accelerator group had to decide which one should we test. Um, and they did pick one.
4: The first person was a researcher at Princeton University, Alex Todorov. He's
2: kind of a big deal. Okay. <laughs> he has this really influential idea about how we make snap judgments from people's faces. Um, it, it really helps explain a piece of where stereotypes come from. And so Chris reaches out and tells Alex, hey, w- we want to test your
4: idea. But here's the beauty in the accelerator, or maybe the beauty in Alex, um, or both. His reaction was positive. Well, I remember, of course, I remember it
5: very clearly. That that That's Alex
2: Todorov? Yeah, I called him up. I really just wanted to know how he felt when Chris reached out to him.
5: Everybody has been talking about replication crisis, and often when people go to replicate something, it's because they don't believe in it. And, and you know, and that uh, can put you in somewhat uncomfortable feeling
4: uncomfortable. But Alex was pretty confident. And he was great in those initial interactions, just enthusiastic, supportive, I think excited. This was his chance to test this idea all around the world.
5: And I've always been interested, but it's impossible for a single lab to do this at this large scope.
2: So Alex gives advice, and then Chris and his team do the super critical step pre-registration. Mm-hmm. They contact a journal and they send in their whole recipe for the study.
4: Our methodology. Three eggs. Our data collection plan. Three tablespoons of butter. Our analytical strategy. Six cups of grated cheese.
2: And and then it starts. They they start testing this idea around the world and data starts coming in and they start analyzing it. Remember, if the top isn't brown and crispy, then it is not a souffle. And then there's a snack. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. So remember here, Chris and his team have their recipe down. They've committed to it. Mm -hmm. But then Alex Todorov, he starts to do some reading. And he starts to have some doubts about one of the final steps in the recipe. Wait a second. If the top gets overly brown, then the souffle might be burned. He asked them, can we tweak this?
1: Isn't that like the whole point of this whole pre-registration thing? Like no tweaking the recipe?
2: Yes, Absolutely, that is the whole point. Uh, okay. But Alex makes an interesting argument here. He says you don't always know everything you're going to need, you know, when you start a project.
5: Imagine you're a brain surgeon and you pre-register all of the steps of your brain surgery. And then you started poking in the brain of your patient and said, oops, if I don't do this, I'm actually sure going to kill him or her. Would you change the procedures? Okay, what does what Chris say to that? Oh,
2: he, 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 didn't, he didn't agree. <laughs> He and his team, they didn't think there was a problem with this recipe. And they didn't want to let the person who had the most to lose here come in and fiddle with it. So they refused.
4: I would say that the initial enthusiasm um, ran out during this process. It it
2: sounded really tense. There Hmm. was a lot of back and forth. Uh, Eventually, this paper published. The replication results came out. And honestly, they were kind of messy and split. It sounds almost like Chris had this big, beautiful
1: idea. You know, everyone will just do pre-registration, promise not to tweak their recipe, and everything would just be fine. But I guess in the end, if you actually try to make a CERN for psychology in the real world, it's it's just a lot harder.
4: Could there be a better demonstration that it's needed? A pattern of human response where initial enthusiasm gives way to debate an argument only once the data are in hand is kind of a really elegant demonstration of some of the problems.
1: And I guess Alex is a
2: example of one of the problems here? I don't want to demonize Alex. He, you know, okay. <laughs> you, you there are rude scientists out there. I have talked to them. He is not one of them. He was very generous with his time, and he was very thoughtful but this is just really hard. It's really hard to invite people, to invite others, to look for flaws in your own work.
5: People always talk, I mean, the stereotype of the scientist, especially from an outside perspective, is like, okay, we objective, we have personal life, and the science is completely different. And that's just not true. I mean, half of your life is your work. And then you've built in your reputation.
2: Science is done by people. <laughs> and people are going to have emotions about their work.
1: It sounds like the method to fix psychology is really, really complicated and difficult, and it's gonna take a long time and tons of people are gonna burn out. And in the meantime, like, we still have psychology, right? I mean, can we trust
2: psychology right now? I actually think psychology is leading the way on a lot of this. These problems we've been talking about with, like, cherry-picking data and, like, the need to publish at all costs this exists in other fields of science.
1: What, like, like a ton of biological research and and, and chemical research isn't true
2: either. Yeah, go Google replication crisis in biomedicine. <laughs> There's one there. It's just less well documented. Uh, psychology is really paving a path forward here. And right now, we don't have to throw out everything in psychology. We have learned things. There are there are studies that replicate, but. Good science is a gift we give to the future, so
4: we have to get it right. If you can just marginally improve the way we collect and analyze our data and draw conclusions from them, there are untold future human beings that can benefit from that tiny advance. You don't have to answer all the questions today. It's good enough to make incremental but lasting progress on how we ask those questions.
2: And if psychology can find a way to make those incremental changes, maybe other fields can replicate their success.
1: Resnick is a senior science reporter for Unexplainable and Vox.com. This episode was produced by Bird Pinkerton. We had editing from Meredith Hadenot and me, Noam Hassenfeld. Liliana Michelena did the fact-checking. Hannes Brown did the mixing and sound design. I wrote the music. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. For more about The Accelerator and their plans for the future, check out our newsletter. You can sign up at Vox.com Unexplainable. And as always, you can find a link to subscribe in our show notes. And while you're over at vox.com slash unexplainable, we've got something new for you over there. In case you want to share any of our past episodes with kids or students, episodes that have curse words in them, check out our site for a link to clean versions of past episodes. And also email us. We love reading emails. We're at unexplainable at vox.com. Unexplainable is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. And we'll be back in your feed next Wednesday.